Well, last week we started a uh, brand new uh, Bible study, a study of the book of Romans, and we went through, it was all introductory material last week, and we talked about a number of different things, uh, some different themes of Romans. We talked about Paul as the author and, and a, lot of, uh, a lot of the groundwork for what we're doing tonight, and if you missed that, it is online. You can watch that on our website, and, or you can listen to it. It's also there on, uh, with the audio. But tonight, we're going to be, uh, begin with uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 1 here in just a moment. But you know, there's an old, there was an old saying back in the time of the Roman Empire that said, all roads lead to Rome. Anybody ever heard that, that phrase? And uh, it, 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 as if proving that, the, the gospel that was born in Judea eventually made its way to the capital of the empire. And it's not perfectly clear to us exactly how soon the message about Christ got to Rome or, or even how the church started. We all, in all likelihood, it was, it was people who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost who, who uh, gave their lives to Christ. They heard the message proclaimed by Peter in that powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost. We know that there were, there were Jewish uh, celebrators there from Rome, and very likely they're the ones that went back home and they started telling the other people there, the Jews in, in the synagogues in Rome, uh, about about the fact that the Messiah had come. But uh, but by the end of the second decade, decade following Christ's resurrection, they, we know there was an established group of Christians there, and uh, we know that as we talked last week that that they were uh, mainly, although there were Gentiles involved, they were mainly Jewish people. But then when Emperor Claudius uh, had a decree that all the Jews would leave, uh, leave Rome. Then when they left, the Gentiles kept preaching the gospel message. And so eventually when Claudius died about five years later, that, that, uh, that law was rescinded, that order was rescinded, and the, and the Jews came back to Rome, and they found out that uh, they were now in the minority of the church. And so we do know that Romans was written mostly to uh, to a church that was mostly Gentile, but there were, uh, was also a good number of Jews there. So uh, anyway, tonight what we're going to be looking at there, you know, Paul, he had never been to Rome. He didn't plant the church there. He had never been there. He did know several of the people that were in the church from previous uh, uh, situations where he had met them. Uh, and so he opens his letter to these, uh, to these believers by explaining who he is, and what his credentials are. And almost immediately, however, he directs their attention to the Lord Jesus Christ because he knew, Paul knew, that, that the resurrected Christ was the most important common denominator for him and for the believers in, the, in Rome. And I found that to be true. Times that I've been on missions trips, I've been in places with, that they spoke a language that I didn't understand. But there was something about being there that we both loved Christ that brought us together, and there was a unity there. And so he, from that common ground, he, uh, he gets to the, eventually uh, talking about his plan to visit them, and then he plunges into one of the most detailed explanations of the gospel and of the Christian faith found in the Bible. So let's pick it up in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, 
we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to, to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what we don't see, it's very interesting. Paul, as you know, when he writes, he has this habit of writing these massively long run-on sentences. What, you, what we don't see in English because they have split it up is that all of that that we just read in Greek is one sentence. He, did, he, he put it all in one sentence. And so, uh, and, and you know, he starts this off. You know, today we write letters and we, what do we do? We, we started off by saying, dear so-and-so or something like that. Or if it's an email today, people don't write letters very often anymore. If it's an email, we start with, hi, whatever their name is. And, but in the same way that we kind of have our method of writing, the ancient letters followed certain particular conventions. And so what they did, which actually makes a lot more sense than what we do, the, the writers would begin by identifying himself or herself then, then identifying the address C, and then finally by giving the conventional greeting. And I say that makes more sense is because when you get a letter from somebody, if, it's, if their name is not on the envelope, what's the first thing you do? You flip to the last page because you want to see who wrote it. And so they just put it all at the very beginning. And, 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 and in that process, that, that introduction, those introductions uh, were typically very simple. But writers could expand on any of those elements uh, as needed. And because Paul here is writing to the congregation, to a congregation that he has never visited, most of them he does not know, uh, he, uh, he, he expands that first element about his identity at greater length than usual. But, but introductions, whether, whether it was of speeches or, or laws or books or, or other works, typically... They, they, in that process of the introduction, they would introduce that, that work's primary themes. And what Paul does, even in this greeting, he begins to hint at some of those themes that, that he's going to be writing about in this, in the, in this opening. He becomes, and we're not going to get there tonight, but in, in, he becomes much more specific in verses 8 through 17, especially in verses 16 and 17. When we get to that, that's one of the most famous passages, passages of Scripture in Romans and and that's going to be powerful. But, you know, the thing is, in, in spite of the remarkable influence that Paul had in the spread of the gospel and the writing of the New Testament, that it, it's almost shocking to us that we, we really know relatively very little about him. We know that he was given the name Saul at birth and that he is, he is called that until uh, on his first missionary journey he has a conflict with a man named Bar-Jesus in Paphos and and, uh, and at that time, Paul wrote, then Saul, who is called Paul. And from that point on, he was called Paul instead of Saul in the book of Acts. And, and we know this. We know that as Saul, he was raised a strict Pharisee. We know because he told us in Philippians that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And we know that he was born in Tarsus and he was educated in Jerusalem under uh, one of the most famous teachers of the day, a man named Gamaliel. And, but, but he was born to Jewish parents. And even though he was born to Jewish parents, the interesting thing about Saul was, he was, was that he was also a Roman citizen. In fact, we know him probably best by his last name because Paul, which in Greek is Paulos, was probably his Roman surname. 
So he would have been formally introduced as, as Saul Paul, as Salos Paulos. That was his real name. I wish I had a name that rhymed. Well, actually, no, I don't. That would, that would be bad, especially in grade school. That would have been really bad. But, but here's the thing. Out of this diverse background, out of this uh, very diverse background, God formed and called a very valuable servant of the kingdom. And, and, and the fact is, when you read the story uh, of the early church in the book of Acts, and you read some of the things that Paul wrote in his writings, you discover that God used every aspect of Paul's upbringing, every aspect of his background, he used that to further spread the gospel. So there were times when he was talking with Jewish people and his Jewish training, God used that. And then the fact that he was a Roman citizen allowed him to travel freely throughout the empire. God used that. The fact that he was a Roman citizen allowed him to appeal to Caesar. God used that. You see over and over this background that he had, the education that he had, all of these things, God used it all. And, and, And long before Paul was able to call himself a servant of Jesus Christ, the, the reality is he, he gained a reputation as being Christianity's greatest enemy. He was, he was trying to kill the church. Paul was so zealous for the Jewish faith that he persecuted the followers of Jesus without mercy. And the first time we hear about him is in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And that's where Stephen was, was being stoned. And we're told that, that, that Paul was standing. He's known Saul then, but Saul was standing there and he was approving of the stoning of Stephen. And then later, as we all know, and this is a very condensed version of his life, but on a journey to Damascus, he had been, he had been sent there. He had papers from the leaders of the, of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem and from the high priest. He was going there to Damascus. He was going to find these believers in Jesus. He was going to root them out. He was going to arrest them, bring them back. And we know that at times they were killed as a result of his, of his work there. But on that journey, on that journey, it didn't go the way that Paul expected it to go, did it? Paul came face to face with Jesus Christ and became a believer himself. He's going there to persecute the believers. And next thing he knows, he's a believer and he becomes a servant and an apostle. And I say all of that about Paul's background because I want to say this. This is so important for us in, in today's world. But in God's plans, no part of our background or our upbringing is ever wasted. God doesn't waste your past. You know, all of us in this room, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I did, if I asked, if I asked the question, is that how many of you have things in your past that you're ashamed of? I think everybody, I'm not going to, don't do it, don't raise your hand, but I think if I did that, everybody would raise their hand at some, at some point in your life, you'd say, man, there's definitely some things that I'm ashamed of. But, but you know, it's the same as it was with Paul. Paul had many things he was ashamed of. He, he later, he said, he, you know, it's funny when you watch the progression of Paul and his view of himself, uh, the closer the longer he walked with Jesus and the closer he got to Jesus, the more righteous he became in Christ, the lower he saw himself. Because he starts off by saying things like, well, I'm the least of the apostles. Yes, I am an apostle. I'm the least of the apostles. Then near the end of his life, you know what he, how he described himself? He said, I am the chief of sinners. You see, he began to see himself differently in that and but, but, but Paul, he certainly had areas of his life and he made it very clear. He had times and, and, and things in his past that he was absolutely ashamed of. They aided him. 
And, and, and we're the same way. We have parts in our past that to us, we think, man, that's a liability. That's never, God could never use that. And it, it, but it, it, it's humbling. It's a humbling experience to look back over life and then begin to see how God has been able to turn even difficult situations into good. You know, I, I mean, our own past mistakes, you know, going through some things, when you respond and receive forgiveness for Christ, it does a couple of things. First of all, it makes you a wiser mentor for somebody else who's going through it, right? Because if they begin to walk down that path, begin to make some of the decisions you made, may begin to make some of the mistakes you made, then it's easier for you to understand it. You're able to recognize it and you're able to sit down with them and say, listen, we need to talk because I've walked down this path. I want you to know what it leads to. Makes you a wiser mentor, but also... This is really important in today's world because you, sometimes we lack this in the church, but it also makes us a more merciful counselor to others. Isn't that true? You know, when, when you haven't walked down the road, when you haven't experienced what somebody else has experienced, it's easier to sit in judgment of them, isn't it? But when you have been there and you look at them in the eye and you say, listen, I have no room to judge because I have done this and worse. And it, it, and it helps you to have greater mercy toward those in helping to lead them out of that. You know, somebody once said, it's a great quote. I don't even know who said it, where I heard it first. But somebody said this. They said, God never wastes a hurt. I love that because, because listen, there are all kinds of things, whether it's a, something that I have caused in my own life or something that somebody else has done to me. The fact is God never wastes a hurt. He can redeem that. He can use that to touch the lives of other people. He can use that to encourage other people. He can use no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what's happened to you, God can redeem that. He's not going to waste that hurt. And then Paul, in this introduction, he introduces himself. He begins by introducing himself as a slave of Christ and also as a called apostle and as one set apart for God's gospel, which make sure we all know, I think everybody here probably knows, but gospel just means good news. So this is God's good news. Now, although apostleship may be his distinctive gift because that was something that had been given to him by Christ himself, uh, he, will, he will return to many of these descriptions uh, uh, with regard to other believers more generally. So when he talks about himself being a slave to Christ, later we see him talking in other places in Romans about their slavery to God versus being a slave to sin. And he talks about their God-initiated calling. He talks about their being set apart for God. So all these things that he talks about himself, he, he applies them into the lives of the believers there in Rome. And the good news, the gospel, is, is really, to me, it is the overarching, the most important major theme in this letter. And it, and it really lies at the heart of his own mission. But, we, but when we look at this where he introduces himself as a slave of Christ, as a servant of Christ, most translations say, the, the word that may be translated servant in your Bible, it literally means slave. And it's one who is subject to the will and wholly at the disposal of his master. Here, here's the thing. There are, there are no less than six Greek words that uh, describe servitude. And from all of those Greek words, Paul could have chosen any one of those to express the idea that he is a servant of Christ. Right? He could have chosen any one of them. 
But what he did was that he deliberately passed over the weakest of those words and he chose the strongest word to describe uh, the most absolute servitude because he used the word doulos. And and in Greek, the person uh, who who is purchased, for example, in a slave market, that person who has been purchased he had been bought and paid for, and you are my property now. That, was called a, that person was called a doulos. And Paul says, I am a doulos of Christ. In other words, you know what he's really saying here? He's saying, listen, Jesus has purchased me. Jesus paid a price, and he owns me. He's purchased Paul out of the market, and now he has all that Paul has, his time, his strength, his talents, even life itself. None of that belongs to Paul anymore because Jesus has bought it. He belongs to Jesus. You know, I really believe with all my heart that part of our problem in American Christianity uh, is is this. We still think of ourselves... As belonging to ourselves. That's how we think, especially here as Americans. I mean, we think, man, I have rights. I have rights. Well, if you've been purchased by Jesus, you, no, you don't. He does. It, we say we think we call the shots. We think we can just do whatever we want. You know what we do? What we do is is we get an idea and we begin to do it. And what we do after we make the decision to do it, then we get, begin to pray and say, Oh God, bless what I'm doing, bless what I'm doing, bless what I'm doing. When instead, if we really understood that He is our owner, that He is our Lord, that we are, we are, uh, we are slaves to Christ, that He owns us, that He has bought us with a price, if we understood that, instead we would be going to our Master, to our Lord, and we would be saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? See, we, we start doing things and say, Lord, bless what I'm doing. We ought to be praying, Lord, show me what you're blessing, and then I'll do that. So, so you know, this is, a, this is an issue here in America. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, and many of you have heard this. He said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Listen to this line. You are not your own. You are not your own. He goes on and says, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You see, he's using, the, that's the principle of doulos. He's saying you have been bought with a price. Therefore, you, you are not your own. And, and as followers of Jesus, we've got to understand we are not our own. I don't own me. I don't own me. You don't own you. We have been bought at a very high price, the blood of Jesus, and now we belong to Him. And if we are truly followers of Christ, then we have to understand that we don't get to call the shots. We do, if we're really doing it right, if we're really following Him, and I understand none of us are perfect, right? Nobody here has arrived. I want to make sure. Anybody here, you perfect yet? I don't see any hands. I'm glad to see that because I would have to just turn this over to you and let you teach it because I'm not there. Uh, so I understand that, but, in, but, but when we, if we understood this whole concept of, of him being our owner, of, of him calling the shots, we would understand that we do what he says when he says to do it. We say what he says to say. We give what he says to give. We go wherever he says to go. Now, and this is a very, very difficult idea for us with our Western mindset, living here as American citizens. It's a very difficult idea for us to get because what do we value in America? We value self-reliance. 
We value independence. We celebrate personal freedom. Nevertheless, Paul is saying, we're not our own. We belong to Jesus. He paid an exorbitant price for us. We belong to him. And here's the thing. This is, the reason this matters is we struggle with this concept. Because we, we, it's just so foreign to our mind. And because we struggle with this concept, therefore, we don't fully understand lordship. See, and I'm going to talk about that. See, Paul's favorite title for Jesus is Lord. And it's a Greek word, kurios. And in Greek, that, the word for Lord, it, it describes someone who has undisputed possession of a person or thing. It means master. It means owner in, in the most absolute sense. See, the, the opposite of that word kurios or Lord is doulos, slave. It's the very opposite. Paul thought of himself as the slave of Jesus and, and Jesus was his master and Lord. So in using this term, Paul expresses his absolute devotion and subjection to Jesus Christ. And so, so it, it, see, if we don't understand the one, it's very difficult to understand the other because the two work together because one is Lord, the other is the servant. The other is the slave. You see that? Now for, for Paul... As a Roman citizen, to identify himself as a slave was absolutely unthinkable. They were proud of their citizenship. I mean, I mean, as Americans, most Americans are proud to be American citizens. Well, it's the same for the Roman Empire. Roman uh, citizens were, were typically very proud to be a Roman citizen because that gave them rights and privileges that nobody else in the world have had. And, and so for him to identify himself as a slave was unthinkable. It, it, just, it would have just blown their mind. He could have introduced himself as a Roman citizen, couldn't he? I mean, he's writing to the Romans. Would have made sense. Would have said, hey... Hey, I just want you to know, I'm one of you. I'm a Roman citizen, so I can't wait to come to Rome and see my capital city. But that's not what he did. Instead, he chose to speak of himself only as completely dependent on and obedient to his beloved master. And Paul emphasized from his own life the highest allegiance that ought to mark every believer. So, so you know, all talking about all that, I think anytime we, we, you look at Scripture and you begin to study Scripture... It has to lead to questions that you have to ask yourself. Because if it doesn't, then all you're gaining is knowledge instead of transformation. And if you learn to ask questions, then it begins to personalize it. So I think the question that we have to ask ourselves in light of all this is, what is my attitude toward Christ as my master? Do I, do I understand this? Or do I still just pretty much do whatever I want to do, and then later say, Lord, would you bless this? Or am I submitting to him in such a way where I say, Lord, what do you want me to do? You know, it's kind of the same sort of principle when in James, which maybe we'll study James another time, but, but uh, James is telling them, you say, I'm going to go down to this city or that city, and I'm going to do this or that. I'm going to carry on this commerce, that commerce. And James makes a point. He said, no, no, no. He said, you should be saying, I'm going to go down to this city if the Lord wills. I'm going to be doing this if the Lord wills. See, we, and that's, that's, that's the same idea here that we understand His Lordship and the fact that He owns us 
then we'll, we, it's okay to say, I'm going to go do this. But we really, honestly, we need to have that attitude about our lives that says, if the Lord wills, this is what I'm going to do. But if he says no, he gets to call the shots. See, that, that's what it's all about. Our, our willingness to serve and obey Jesus enables us to be useful and usable servants to do work for him that really, really matters. And so this obedience that we're talking about, it begins... First of all, as we renounce our other masters, which, by the way, in, in America, it, it starts by renouncing ourselves as our master. Starts by saying, I am, I am not my master. I don't own me. I'm not calling the shots for me. Uh, we renounce, you know, in our, our nation, we, there's probably some of us that need to renounce money as our master because money controls every decision that we make. And are we... We might need to uh, renounce the applause and the approval of men as our master. We certainly need to renounce sin as our master. We need to renounce the devil as our master. We turn our back on everything else and say, I live only for one purpose, and that is to please the one Lord that I have, the one master in my life, and that is Jesus. Second is that we identify identify ourselves with Jesus. We, We identify with who he is. We, we identify ourselves as his slaves. We identify with his death and resurrection. What that means is by identifying with his death and res- resurrection, it means that the old man has died and now we are living a brand new life as we've been created in him. Third thing is we discover his will. And then, then the hard part is then we live according to it. So we don't chase our will anymore, but we live to, to know his will and to do his will and His will alone. And then the last one is to consciously turn away from con- conflicting interests, even if these interests have been important to us in the past. And, and can I say this? This idea of turning away, this is really the essence of repentance. See, w- in, our, in our culture, many times we turn repentance into a synonym with, uh, for saying, I'm sorry for something. So we say, repent, for your, for your, uh, repent of your sin turn to Christ, and then people come down and they think that means, oh, okay, I'm just going to go up there and say I'm sorry for my sin. Well, sorrow is a part of repentance, but that's not all that it is because the word repentance literally means to change your mind. And so it's about changing your mind in such a fundamental way that it actually then in turn changes your actions. It changes the direction of your life. One way I've used to describe uh, repentance for people is that, you know, in your life, you're, you're going a certain direction. You're moving this way. You're walking toward whatever you want. You're serving your own will. You're living in this sin. And repentance doesn't mean where you, where you just simply say, God, I'm, I'm sorry for going this way. Would you please forgive me? And then you just keep going. That, that's not repentance at all. You, you, you may be profoundly sorry for it, but nothing has really happened. Repentance is when you change your mind and you say, that I thought was very desirable. That is something that I thought I wanted. I've been chasing after that. Now my mind has been changed to such a degree that that is repulsive to me. I I, I don't want that anymore. And that change of mind causes us to turn and change directions where now instead of pursuing that, now I begin to pursue Christ. That's what repentance is. And this is the conscious turning away of those things that are in, in competition for our, for our affection and for our devotion. So Paul, after establishing his identity as Christ's servant, he 
he notes two important roles that characterize his life. First of all, he said he was called to be an apostle. And, and, and we alluded to this a few moments ago, but his, his calling to be an apostle occurred when he saw the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Which, by the way, you read the book of Acts, you discover that the, that the qualifications for being an apostle was, uh, you read Acts chapter 1, you'll see that one of the qualifications was that they, that they had to have physically, personally seen Jesus. Well, Paul, he was qualified by Jesus himself because Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And, and, and his call came directly from Jesus Christ and God the Father. And, I mean, think about that moment. You know, you're, you're on your way to destroy the church, and all of a sudden, you know, Jesus, the Son of God, appears to you and says, this has got to change, Paul. And it did change. And, and, and to him... He, he was called then to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and, and that was a, a powerful assignment for him. And he, he saw himself as responsible to teach the gospel of God among the Gentiles. You know, can I just say this? And this is, I hadn't planned on talking about this, but in America, we like to talk about our rights, don't we? We love our rights. Nothing wrong with, with, uh, with understanding and knowing your rights and standing on your rights. There's nothing wrong with that other than the fact that you need to understand that they really belong to Jesus. But what we don't understand, what we forget is that for every right that we have been given, we have a corresponding responsibility. And you can see it even just in, in regular law here in the United States. You have a right to free speech, Right? However, can you go into a crowded theater and yell fire and then claim free speech? No, because that's using your free, your free speech in a way that's irresponsible and harms other people. So even, even on the political level here, we understand that there is a responsibility that goes along with the rights. And so, you know what, that we understand this. Christ has purchased for us the right to be called the children of God. That's amazing, isn't it? That we have been adopted. He has purchased for us that right. But we've got to remember that corresponding with that right is a responsibility to carry this message. We have to remember that. You know, Paul, Paul was one of the few Christians who could speak of literally being called by God. You know, I mean, I'll tell you, I'll stand up here and tell you all day that I heard the voice of God speak to me in my spirit, call me to ministry you know, more years ago than I'm going to admit to you, but it was a long time ago. But, but I, I'm telling you this, I did not have Jesus stand uh, in front of me and appear physically in front of me and speak to me audibly and call me. That's Paul's experience. He spoke audibly to Paul on the road to Damascus. And, and the, the title of apostle it, it designated authority to set up and to supervise churches and to discipline if they, them if, if necessary. And, and even more than, that, than, than the, 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 the title of authority, that, that word apostle means one sent on a mission. Uh, like an envoy or an ambassador. And Paul understood that. He said, I'm an apostle of Christ. I have been sent on a mission. And Paul represents himself with the credentials and responsibilities given to him by the king of kings as an ambassador to evangelize the Gentile world. And uh, responding to the gospel... For us, is a call, and hearing it's it's about hearing the most important call in our lives of all. Many of us, listen. I believe God's got a calling on everybody to to be a minister of the gospel. I don't mean 
that you're called to pastor, but you are called to carry this message. You're called to be the hands of Jesus. You're called to minister to people in the name of Jesus. So we all have a calling, but all of that comes after the first calling. And that first calling is that we're called to belong to Jesus. Verse 6, he said, And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He has called you by name. And we are called to belong to Jesus. But we're also called to be saints. We're going to get into that word a little bit more in a moment. But verse 7, he said, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And, And that call to belong to Jesus and the call to be saints, that has to be a daily pursuit in our lives. Well, he said not only was he called, but he said he was set apart by God's grace. I I love the fact that he said he was set apart by God's grace because what that tells me is that he regarded this calling of his, them being set apart for this mission, uh, he regarded the communication of the gospel as a a special sign, as a role that had been given to him. It was not something that he had earned but he was privileged to carry it out. That's where he's set apart by God's grace. He did not earn the right to be called an apostle. He did not earn anything that he was doing, but that was something that was given to him by the grace of God. You know, and there's an application for our own lives in that. And that is that when we serve the Lord, when you're serving in the church, when you're talking to other people about Jesus, I want you to think about this. We, in those moments, what I'm doing today, we do what we have no right to do on our own. I have no right to speak in God's name. I've been given that. That's part of my calling. We have no right to reach out in His love. We have no right to lead other people. But that's part of what He does in us. He calls us and He gives us that grace and He sets us apart for that. But it's, it's, it's something that He has done, not something that we have earned. Well, He was not only set apart by grace, but He says that He was set apart for the gospel promised beforehand through his prophets. And, and of this gospel, he says two things. First, he said it was promised previously by his prophets, by God's prophets. And this promise was recorded in the Holy Scripture. So the, the good news, the gospel, it, it was promised by God. It was not a new religion. It was not some new idea that, that Jesus came up with. It was not some new religion made up by Paul or by anybody else. It was rooted in, God, in, in God's promises in the Old Testament to His people through the prophets. And the, the gospel that Paul preached was in perfect continuity with, the, with, the, with God's earlier words in the Scriptures to His people in Israel. So he's, he, this is very important, especially to the Jews that are there as he's writing to them in the church, because they're saying, listen, is this something new? And he's trying to help them understand, no, this has been something that God has been talking about over over the centuries, that you can read about it, you can see how all along he was pointing to this moment. And This was on Paul's mind, and and, uh, it's a recurring theme throughout the letter. The, The prophets of the Old Testament, announce the coming fulfillment of God's grace in Christ. I want you to understand this. Some people have this idea that the New Testament, that there's a God of grace in the Old Testament, is like a God of judgment and anger. But I want you to understand this. 
that grace is the theme that runs through the entire scripture, that the Old Testament is all about the grace of God. You say, what are you talking about? Because it's, it's displayed through Israel. How many times did Israel deserve to be cut off from God? How many times did they deserve to be punished? How many times did those kind of things happen? And yet God just put his grace on display. How many animals, you know, we talk about in the Old Testament, you had animal sacrifices, and, and those animals did not deserve to die, did they? The people who committed the sins did. So every time an animal was sacrificed in the temple, it was a display of the grace of God saying, you're not going to have to pay the penalty for your own sin. It all pointed to what he was going to do through Jesus in a perfect way. And all these Old Testament prophecies, all these prophets from the Old Testament, they all pointed to Jesus. You know, the, Jesus fulfilled, and, and I, I've, I've seen different numbers, but I'll go with this one. This is a, at least this number. But he fulfilled at least 350 Old Testament prophecies in his lifetime. I mean, from, from thousands of years before that. And the, and the actual fulfillment of those prophetic statements, what that confirms to us and to the people who, that Paul was writing to was that God was involved in this all along. He all along, and this, this direct statement by Paul anticipates an important teaching that he's going to develop later on in his letter. We'll get back to that in, in, when we re reach those places. But I also want you to see this, because the Old Testament prophets that he was talking to not only pointed to the gospel, but Paul points out something very specifically that I think we need to deal with, because he points out that it is the gospel concerning God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's important. You, and you're sitting, sitting there and you hear this and you say, well, duh. I mean, this sounds like basics of the gospel, that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, you know, honestly, I think that, that a great part of Christianity in today's world seems to be completely uninformed that the gospel is concerning God's son. And, and men are preaching today almost anything and calling it the gospel. The true gospel, listen to me. Any, if you want to know whether a preacher is preaching the true gospel, here's, here's the real key. The true gospel, God's gospel, is, a, is the gospel that has to do with Jesus. That's it. He is the focus. Jesus is central. Not me, not you, not any human being, but Jesus alone. You know, I mean, let me just show you how it kind of plays out. And, and I'm going to get, you know, if, if this bothers you, you can talk to me about it later. But, but I've noticed a trend among, uh, that to me is disturbing, that are a trend among so many new worship songs that, that don't focus on actually worshiping Jesus. Now, let me just say this. There are, there are some amazing, fabulous songs being written today. So I'm not talking about, you know, we should be singing the hymns. That's not what I'm talking about at all because there's some amazing songs being written today. But I have noticed, it seems like more and more lately, that there are a lot of worship songs that talk more about I, me, and my than it does about Jesus. That's not a worship song. That may be a song of declaration, but it's not truly a worship song. I, I, have, I have even noticed songs that, that talk about the virtues of praise. They sing about all the greatness of praise, and praise does this, and praise does that, and, and that's all, you know, that's well, good and well, but, but they talk about the virtues of praise and never get around to actually praising Jesus. 
that, that's a symptom. You know, there, there are songs that talk about who we are in Jesus. Well, and listen, that is valid because we, do, we, we need to know that, that in Christ we are more than conquerors. We need to know that we are seated in heavenly places. We need to know that we are, we are the children of God. However, when we worship God, when it comes time to worship Him, the focus should not be on who I am, but the focus should be on worshiping Jesus because He is the one who made me all those things. See what I'm saying? So it's not just celebrating, I am this and I'm that. God does, you know, that I, I've got this and I've got this. I can, I can, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I can do this and I can do that. But it's about Jesus did this in me. Jesus needs to be worshipped. Not be, because I did not accomplish any of those things. I don't have any of those positions in Christ because I did anything. He did it all. He deserves all the glory. And that is what causes me to want to worship Him. So, you know, I mean, where are the songs today that talk about who He is in us? We have lots of songs that talk about who we are in Him. And I'm not saying they're bad, but I'm just saying it seems like some of our worship is getting out of balance in today's world because we need to be talking about who He is and who He is in us. You know, we, and listen, we should sing songs that celebrate the great an intimate and overwhelming love of God. We should sing those. We should celebrate those. But you know what? We have sort of lost this sense of the otherness of God. And what I mean by that is that He is not like us. He's not like us. Jesus is not my boyfriend, you know? He, he is not like us. He is greater than anything we face. He's greater than anything we know. He's greater than, than anything that we can imagine. And, and, and His holiness is more overwhelming than we can possibly begin to imagine. That, that He is God and that there is none like Him. Because listen, these things are important. And they're very important for our worship because only when we understand these kinds of things. Only when we understand the otherness of God, the, the fact that He is not like any other human being, He's not even close to a human being, His ways are higher than my ways, His thoughts are higher than my thoughts, that He is above and beyond everything we can possibly imagine. Until we understand those things, then we will never be able to fully appreciate the fact that He, being who, who He is in His greatness, went out of His way to rescue and redeem us. See, that makes it more amazing. Only when we appreciate and understand His holiness can we begin to even, even begin to grasp the miracle of His grace. See, until we understand that His holiness is so perfect that sin cannot exist in His presence. Only when we understand that can we get to the place where we, begin, where we, we even begin to grasp the miracle of the fact that He reached down into the, into the muck and the mire of humanity, that He walked among us, that He lived among us, that He, he, he didn't sin, but He experienced the pain and destructiveness of sin in this world. He saw what sin does. He saw what death does to humanity. And He did all of that just to save us because He loves us. And the fact that He is so far above us makes that that much more amazing. And until we understand that, then we, we you know, the, 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 
it, the fact is, in spite of the uh, the fact that that bec- in spite of the fact uh, that that because of his holiness, listen, I'll, I'll put it together here. <laughs> I'll pull it together. His holiness is so perfect that he would have been right and just to destroy us on the spot in our sin. And it would have been the right thing to do. When we begin to get to that, that that's who he is, that that's what he had the right to do, and yet he chose in his holiness to come among us, then we don't really understand his grace. See, when we don't understand his holiness then we don't understand the weightiness of our sin. And when we don't grasp the weightiness of our sin, then we begin to take His grace for granted. Or we begin to think, well, yeah, I needed grace, but I didn't, didn't need that much grace. I wasn't that bad. I'm not like, I'm, I'm, I'm not like uh, you know, Chuck back there, you know. <laughs> I'm not nearly as sinful as him. He needed a lot of grace. You remember the story in the, in the, Jesus told about, about the, uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee that was in the temple? And the Pharisee was standing there. <laughs> well, the, the, the tax collector was at the, kneeling at the altar saying, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm a sinner in your sight. Forgive me. But then the Pharisee, you remember what he was doing? He's standing there praying out loud in church, standing in front of everybody so everybody could see how religious he was. <laughs> His prayer always cracked me up. You know, I've just pictured in my mind, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like Jason. You know, he just points this guy randomly out. Thank you that I'm not like him, God. I'm not a tax collector. I'm much better than that. And we get that, that attitude where we're like, I needed grace, but I didn't need that much grace because I wasn't that bad of a person. But see, if we understand how high His holiness is, then we understand how horrible our sin was. And when we understand that that gap was wider than we could possibly imagine, then the grace of God to be able to reach past that gulf and to span that gulf and come to us makes it that much more amazing. Listen, if if your message is centered on prosperity or personal exaltation, then that is not the gospel of Jesus. Anything not centered on him is not the gospel of God because the gospel always, always points to Jesus and glorifies him. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox there. After introducing the messenger, which was himself, and the message, which is the gospel, and the source, which was God, Paul turns to the subject of his message. Verse 3, he said this, Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake we receive grace. By the way, I'm not going to teach about this tonight, but that's a powerful statement. That's not only through Christ, but for, it says for his name's sake. You know what that t- says to me right there? And, we'll, and if I had time, we'd look at other places in Scripture. But what's saying, what it's saying to us is that God didn't even save you for you. It was about His name, the glory of His name, putting His glory on display by saving us. Through Him and for His name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. So he's, what he's doing here, he's talking about the dual nature of Christ. And what I mean is that uh, as to His human nature, he says He was a descendant of David, 
And the, the, the central focus of the gospel is Jesus Christ, God's Son, who was both human and divine. Now, now this is very hard for us to wrap our brains around because our brains are like, you know, pea-sized and God's intellect is, is, is unlimited. But, but the unique dual nature of Jesus was a constant part of Paul's t- uh, thinking and his teaching. The, the, the historical human life of Jesus was essential to the gospel. There were groups who began to teach, and, and we're not going to get into it tonight, but began to teach that Jesus didn't really become flesh, but he just appeared to have flesh because they believed that flesh was evil, that there's no way God could become flesh. And that was in the early, early days of the church in the first century. And that was declared to be a heresy because if Jesus did not fully come, if he did not walk in the flesh, then he does not really know what it's like to be human. And he could not have taken our sins upon himself and he could not have shed his blood for us. So, so it's an essential part of the gospel, the essential, the historical human life of Jesus. Uh, you know, the fact, see, in their culture, Roman and Greek culture, it was not unusual. They had lots of stories about a God coming to earth. But it was not in the way that Jesus came to earth. It was, you know, some God coming to earth to plunder the earth or to, you know, to find a mate among humanity. It wasn't them actually becoming a human and walking among us. But, but here, this is Jesus. He was the flesh and blood founder of the Christian faith and, and maintaining a clear emphasis on both Christ's human nature and the divine nature is important for a complete understanding of the gospel because in his, in his humanity, we see his identification with us. And we also see his excellence as an example. It's a pattern for us to live. But in his divinity, we see his worthiness to take our place in receiving the punishment for sin that is due to us. Because in his humanity, he came and he walks and he, and he identifies with us. But it's in his divinity as a perfectly sin, sinless uh, uh, person that he was able then, he had the, he had the, uh, the, the worthiness to be able to, to be the sacrifice for us. See, now what we do, we separate his human and divine natures because that helps us to try to understand it. But the truth is they, can, they cannot be separated. Jesus is and will always be, and to, for lack of a better phrase, the God-man, our Lord and Savior. Then you look at his divine nature. He says, uh, through the spirit of holiness... That he was that he was uh, uh, declared uh, with power to be the Son of God through the Spirit of Holiness. So uh, he, he talks about that. Let me just let me just skip down a little bit. I want to move ahead a little bit from on my notes because I don't want to drag it much longer. But uh, when he said declared here by the by the Spirit of God, that that does not mean that somehow at a certain moment that Jesus achieved. Or, or gained his sonship. It, it, what it really means there, it doesn't mean that, that at a certain moment he became the son of God. What it means is that his nature as God's son be, was made clear to us by his resurrection from the dead. That's what he said. He was, his, uh, he was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So that was the proof, if you want to put it that way. The resurrection was the proof that he was who he said he was. He was, is, and, all, and will always be the son, the son of God. And his resurrection was the physical evidence of the truth that already existed. He was already the Son of God. 
He, but, but then it was declared to us, it was made plain to us, made it apparent to us that that's who he was because he was raised from the dead. That was the evidence. And, and, and our, our personal declaration or acceptance of Jesus as God's son, I want you to understand this, it does not affect the truth of who he is. But it certainly makes a difference in our lives. See, see there's a lot of people out in the world today, they say, well, that's your truth. This is my truth. That's your truth. No such thing. There's just truth. It's either true or it's not true. And, you know, if you, if you say, well, this is my truth, and it's the opposite of what I am saying to be true, one of those must be false. It has to be false. One of them has to be false. And, and, and so we get this idea, you know, that uh, the, this existential idea sort of thing, you know, where they say, uh, if you... If you believe it, then it becomes true for you. But, but in, sender, in surrendering to the truth that he is the Son of God, we, we place ourselves in a position where we benefit from, uh, from all that Christ offers. The fact is, and this is going to sound strange to you, but I'll explain it. He is our Savior before we ever accept him as our Savior. But until we accept him, we have not been saved. Doesn't the Bible say that Jesus is the Savior of the, of the world? Is the whole world saved? No. But He is the Savior. He has paid the price for all of the world's sins, hasn't He? And because of that, He is the world's Savior. He's the only hope they have. But, but, but so the acceptance does not make Him our Savior. The acceptance does not does not uh, make him the son of God, but the fact that he is the son of God, the fact that he is the savior, when I accept it, what the importance of accepting it is that it changes me. See, truth is truth, whether I believe it or not. Truth is truth, whether I believe it or not. However, it's important that I believe it because my acceptance of truth has enormous consequences for me and for the people around me. Look at verse 5. Through him and for his name's sake we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Um, let, me, let me just skip down to that part there where it talks about the obedience that comes through faith. Um, because there's a relationship between faith and obedience. Faith and obedience are absolutely inseparable. This is much of what James writes about. He was saying, listen, you can't just say I have faith. It has to be shown in the way you live. That's talking about faith and obedience. The, the, look, think of it this way. They are two sides of the same coin. Where one is lacking, the other will not be found either. Real faith will always lead to obedience, and real obedience always comes from real faith. So we've got to be very careful to understand faith as Paul uses the word because he ties faith very closely to salvation. And the thing about faith is it is not something that we must do in order to earn salvation. Your faith, and this is going to sound strange, but I'll explain it in a moment. Your faith does not save you because your faith, if your faith could save you, then that is something that you have done. You say, well, my belief saved me. But that's not it, because then it just becomes one more deed, and human deeds can never save us. Instead, what we need to understand is that faith is a gift that God gives us because He is saving us. What does Ephesians say? It says, for by 
grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves as a gift of God, lest any man should boast. So what is he saying there? He's saying we are saved by grace, but, there, but faith is in operation in our lives. But even that faith, he says, does not, is, it does not come from us. That is a gift from God. The faith to believe comes from him. Now, now, now you, you say, well, this is, why, would, why, why doesn't he just give everybody that faith? Well, I'm, I'm going to, I've got so many things running through my head right now. Okay, the, the scripture says, how, how, where do we get faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is what I believe that, that this is talking about. And this is how I believe that it works in our lives. The grace of God is, is active. He's calling people to Christ. It's available to us. When we, when the Bible talks about how will they believe unless, unless a, a, a preacher preaches to them. So, so what it tells to me when you put all this together is at the proclamation of the word of God, the Holy Spirit imparts faith to everybody who's listening so that they have the ability to respond to the grace of God and then they get saved. Now they have the choice to reject it or to receive it, but that's where the faith comes from. And so in his mercy... He saves us in his mercy. He gives us the faith to believe in him. All of it comes from him. We don't get any glory for our salvation at all. He gets it all. He gets it all. And because God is merciful, he offers us faith. And then verse six, and you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Having stated the scope of his ministry, Paul goes on to include the Roman believers in his plan. Paul said, I've been called to an apostle, but he said, you've got a calling too. He said, you've been called to belong to Jesus. We mentioned that earlier. Uh, and, and, and applying the scriptures involves discovering where we fit in God's plan. He says, you also. He said, this is not just about my call. He said, this is not just about what, I, what God's doing in me and through me. You also. And, and that call echoes uh, across the centuries and speaks to our hearts and minds today. We too have been called to belong to Jesus. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, have I responded to that call? And I'm not just talking about, did I respond to an altar call and say a, say a prayer one day, but I'm asking going back to that idea of Christ as Lord and us as doulos, who holds the title to your life? Who holds the title? Who, goes, who owns you? In verse 7, he said, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we're called to be saints, holy ones. Saints literally means those who have been set apart. Because that's what holiness means. If it, something in the Old Testament, if, if it said this is holy under the Lord, that meant that it was set apart for God. You're called to be set apart for God. Every one of us are called for that. And we've been called by God to be holy people, to be set apart for him. And the reality of the invitation rests on the truth that people are loved by God because God calls us because he loves us. And he wants an unbroken relationship with us. You know, when we think about God's love for us, and we're going to close with, with this, but um, whenever our tendency is to begin to think that love whether it's human love or even our relationship with God, we tend to begin to think that God's love for us depends on our behavior or our spiritual success. But when we do that, 
we put ourselves in a hopeless situation because we can never be good enough to deserve God's love. You know, God never goes to a sinner and, and says, listen, I want you to attain sainthood. No, he picks us up out of the mud and he says, because of what Jesus done has done, you are a saint. It's what he does. He says, I have called you out of darkness and into my light. This is never attained by striving, but by taking possession of sainthood, remembering your position in Christ and living in accordance with it. It's by understanding that the love of God has called me out of darkness, that the love of God has saved me, the grace of God has saved me. And therefore, as I walk as one set apart for God, understanding the reality of all those things that, that says to me, then the answer is, I must live in accordance with that. See, when we think of God's love as, condition, as conditional, what we actually do is we transform it into something less than love. Because I want you to hear this. When we talk about love, I don't care if it's talking about God's love or human love. Conditional love is an oxymoron. There is no such thing as conditional love. Because if, if, if you have to meet my conditions before I love you, then I don't really love you. Isn't that right? But God's love is unconditional. You know, one of the first delightful surprises in, in the book of Romans is in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. When? While we were still sinners. We didn't earn it. Can never earn it. And when we understand that he did this in the midst of his holiness, that he came and he walked this earth and he, and he poured his life out for us and he, he entered into the muck and the mire and the dirtiness and the brokenness of this world and he did it because he loves us. What that does is it creates in us a heart of worship. And that's what worship is about. So tonight, you know, I think one of the best things that we can do in response to talking about some of these issues and, is that we need to just thank God for His unconditional, perfect love. But not just thank Him, but we need to live in a way that we respond to that love by living for Him. It's the only thing that makes sense. That's what, we'll get to it in Romans chapter 12. Paul said, he said, the only reasonable response to what God has done for us is to lay our lives down as a living sacrifice for Him. I tell you, there's so much in the book of Romans. I don't know how we're ever going to get through it all, but it's going to be awesome. Why don't you bow your head together with me? Father, I do thank you for the love that you've displayed toward us. I thank you, Lord God, for the call that you placed on us to know you, to belong to you, Lord God. And, and Lord, I pray you'd help us to understand how great your grace really is. Because God, in your holiness, we did not deserve another shot. We, we didn't deserve a second chance. All we deserved was death 
and separation from you. That's what we deserved. And yet, God, in your grace is so amazing, God, that in the middle of our sin, you said, I still love you. I still want to restore my relationship with you. I want to not only make you acceptable to come into my presence, but I want to make you so clean that you'll be one of my children. And God, I pray that as we get a hold of that and we begin to understand the power of the gospel in our lives, God, that we'll be like Paul, we'll say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord God, that it will inspire uh, new levels of worship and a depth of love for you, Lord God, that, that goes so deeply, Lord God, that we live for you as one that says, God, whatever you want, that's what I'll do. Help us to learn to live that way, God. And it's only by your, by your grace that we're going to get there. So we ask for your help. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.